It's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Among the beach-dirty wannabes of South Beach walked a serial killer, police said, who murdered Gianni Versace in the front steps of his Mediterranean mansion. Uh, Mr. Versace, of course, one of the world's top fashion designers, whose designs are famous uh, in all the big fashion centers, such as Paris, Rome, and London. This was a single white male who approached uh, Mr. Versace as he was uh, about to enter the gates. Andrew Cunanan is now a target himself. Who is he? Welcome to Still Watching Versace, a podcast about the FX series American Crime Story, The Assassination of Johnny Versace. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson, and joining me as ever is my co-host and Vanity Fair critic Richard Lawson. Hello. Each week, we will take a deep dive into the latest episode and talk with some of the stars and creatives behind the scene. This week, we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 2, Manhunt, directed by Nelson Craig and written by Tom Rob Smith. Later in the episode, we will be joined by new girl star Max Greenfield, who plays Andrew Cunanan's friend, Ronnie. But before we get to that interview, let's dive right into Episode 2. This episode takes a slight leap back in time to March 1994 in Miami, where we see uh, Gianni and Antonio in the hospital. This is something we talked about in last week's episode is the the treatment of Gianni's uh, illness in um, in this show and what they it, what it seems like they feel like they can and can't say I, I when I watched this episode the first time not knowing that it was potentially controversial to call you know to say that Gianni Versace was HIV positive I just sort of thought it was a known thing um I didn't pay attention but the second time I watched it I noticed that they never say the words HIV or AIDS in regards to his illness yeah. and I don't know if that's like a legal thing <laughs> they don't want to get sued uh, or or just you know uh, the particular line they decided to walk but it seems very clear that that's what they're trying to do without doing it you know it it I, I'm sure that legal stuff is part of it but like like we were talking about last week um, about the first episode was that I think it's also playing with narratives of the time about gay men and and the sort of implicitness of HIV or AIDS is, I think, a, a sort of deliberate point that the show might be making, you know, that we always assume it's that oh, with, the, with that yeah, community. I so, about you know that. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm kind of inferring too much or whatever, but like I, that's how I kind of chose to watch it because it's much more interesting than like, oh, it was just a legal matter. You know, this was sort of one of the the biggest bombshells of Maureen's book. Um, it's it's detail. If you if you're reading Vulgar Favors, if you're doing a book club along with the show, this is in chapter thirty is titled "The Secret," and um, you know this is sort of where Maureen 
was the first, just like she was the first to, you know, um, claim that Gianni Versace and Andrew Cadena knew each other. She was the first to sort of reveal this diagnosis about Gianni Versace um, in her book. And a lot of, you know, I was reading some sort of uh, some New York Post articles around the time that were like huge bombshell in this, you know, book. And so it's understandable if, in fact, Johnny Versace was HIV positive and if, in fact, his family was desperately trying to keep that a secret for business reasons or personal reasons or whatever, I can, it's kind of clear to see why the Versace family and Maury North would be at loggerheads um, y- even now, nearly 20 years later. Um so uh, yeah, what do you think of this of this hospital scene and and what we see of of Gianni and and his his fear and his illness? Um, I think it's well done. I think it's well acted. Um, to be honest, though, I'm not really sure what it has to do with what we're talking about. But I think that's where you run into the problem of telling this story which is so much more actually Andrew Kinnanen's story than it is Gianni Versace's but because he's Gianni Versace you have to have him in the show and this to me even though you know I understand that it was in the book and you know um, I don't know I, I just it doesn't quite fit into the narrative um, as tidily as I would have liked um, that said I think what it leads to which is that pretty bruising um, argument or, or just conversation between Donatella and Antonio, I think if it's, if it, that's well worth it. I mean, that's really interesting. I, I guess I'm not quite hooked into um, Versace's kind of pathos at this point. I wonder if it's, you know, and then this ties into a later sequence with the fashion show that we see. Um, I wonder if there, I don't know, you, you can agree or disagree with me, if there's something interesting in this, you know, man who almost died maybe from an illness he might have had years before and then survives that only to be killed in such a seemingly random manner um, and the sort of lust for life that he exhibits when he is better after this, you know, ni- 1994 yeah. potential diagnosis. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. I think I think that is interesting. I don't know. I agree with you that there are times in which this show struggles. There's times in which the parallels they draw between the Versace life and the Cunanan life is fascinating. And I think as we go on, we will see um, that done a little bit more um natural more organically and i agree with you that in this episode like the two narratives don't really blend as well as they do elsewhere um but i do think it you know if if this was the case as the show has decided it was that johnny was ill and then got better and then was killed i think that is an important thing um to depict and as you say it sort of leads to you know what we see is that um the early questioning of Donatella not knowing what the Versace brand is without Gianni. Like, and this is something that according to the version of the show, she had to reckon with years before the 97 assassination. She had to consider what the company might be without her brother. Um, And, and also, as you say, this notion of family of like, of Antonio and Donatella having this sort of detente for the sake of Gianni. And then, if and how that fell apart once he was gone and they didn't have to pretend. I think also it's interesting that, you know, I don't want to make generalizations in about anything really, but like, you know, this is a town, ta- these are Italians, uh, still a, a, a relatively uh, a non-progressive country on, on gay stuff. And uh, it's again, the night it's 20 years ago. 
in the conversation she has with Antonio, there is, I think, really well played by Cruz and really well written in a subtle way. There is, I think, a strain of maybe not homophobia, but something there where, you know, she accepted, she, she tolerated her brother's lifestyle, but never really accepted it, you know, never really welcomed it in as an idea. And this idea that, like, you know, the notion that... Um, all Gianni wanted was a family and tradition and all that stuff and um, was denied it simply because of this interloper who was all about, you know, bringing third guys into the room, whatever. It sort of robs her brother of his autonomy to make those decisions. Do you know what I mean? And like, I understand that the dynamic was fraught between Antonio and Gianni, but like, uh, um, I don't I don't think you can pin all the blame on Antonio the kind of the way that um, Donatella does in that scene. Absolutely. And I think it echoes back to the premiere episode where you have this detective interrogating Antonio and he's like, doesn't, you know, is act- asking these questions that make our skin crawl about like, what do you mean you're his partner? Or like, what's the difference between you and a rando guy you pick up at a club? Are they his partner? And, you know, Antonio in that episode goes like 15 years, 15 years is the difference. Like, I am his partner. Yeah. And in this this episode, Donatella is portrayed by Penelope Cruz says like, you know, did you give him kids? Did you give him like, you know, like you're not a real, like you're not a real wife. You're not a real partner. You're not a real whatever. You're, uh, you know, this attractive guy that made him feel insecure and all this sort of stuff. It's like, yeah, it's like what she wanted for her brother was a more traditional partnership, a family. And it once again discounts um, what their relationship was and what what Antonio's role was and uh, like as we as we said in last week's episode I think there and here Ricky Martin just plays that so well of like I think you care a lot for Antonio and you see his passive but his passive frustration with being not considered um a true partner to this man legitimate yeah yeah Yeah. i mean it's i mean you know the it's still a a thing that that people on the outside let's say have to kind of process now i mean the fact of the matter is is that a lot of gay couples are especially gay male couples are uh non-monogamous and um whether that involves going out on their own and sleeping with somebody or bringing a third into the bed whatever you know and a lot of times you know if that is related to straight people uh or they find out somehow it, it delegitimizes the relationship in their mind or or they will say that out loud you know to i've seen it happen uh to They'll say it to to a gay couple, and um, you know I think that's a that's a frustrating thing. Um, but uh, to see that dynamic played out uh, in such a you know in this kind of dynastic grand family kind of way, uh, it's, it's it's interesting, and and I think that scene is really well performed by both by both actors. And you know we'll we'll get it. We have a few more Ricky Antonio scenes that I or sorry Antonio and Gianni scenes that I think really does drive home what we were talking about last week in terms of that natural intimacy between these two men who are these two actors who are close in real life. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that a little later on. But here we get we get Donatella this this sort of beautiful ritualistic scene where Donatella dresses her brother, which of course we understand to be so important to this family, and um, and then the cremation. And I I I can't say for certain, but I would think that maybe one of the reasons they they show this cremation um, aspect is in Marie Norris book. She talks about how the Versace family wanted Johnny cremated immediately. It's, it's, um, it's law 
in Miami at least, uh, that the body has to be intact for 48 hours after death because for autopsy purposes. Um, the Versace family was in a rush to have Gianni cremated, which you know Maureen uses to sort of underline her theory that they did not want him autopsy. They did not want... Um, you know, him diagnosed uh, and that to become public. So they just wanted him cremated and to leave. And so in short order, I mean, he he was, they had to obey the law. He was not cremated for 48 hours, but we see in short order, the cremation and the Donatella is on the plane and she's gone, you know? So mm-hmm. it's, um, yeah, it's a really, and, and, and as we said last week, Penelope Cruz is just not, not phoning any of this in. So um, really good stuff. And then we flash back a little bit in time to May 1997. Uh, this is when Andrew Kananen, already on the run, which is something if you don't know about, uh, you, we will learn about, but already on the run, this is when he comes to Miami. So we see him switching a license plate on the red truck he's driving, uh, smiling creepily at a little girl, <laughs> fun times, uh, hearing news about the death of Lee Miglin, who is his third victim. And then we get, <laughs> I'm sorry, a thing that I really loved, which is we know that Darren Chris has an amazing voice. So to watch him sing like very tunelessly along uh, yeah. to the song Gloria as he speeds down the freeway to Florida. I just like really uh, cracked me up. So I, you know, Darren Chris, he yeah. he can fake sing off key. Um, how about that? How about that? And um, but this is this is another aspect. This this is the episode more than the premiere where I really am stuck on Darren Chris being too attractive to play Andrew Kananen at this point in his life because as he is driving down, I mean, obviously. He's already killed a bunch of people. He's smiling creepily at little girls. We're not supposed to see him as like someone of right mind necessarily, but he looks well put together. You know, he's just singing at the top of his lungs and and driving to Florida. And it, like Andrew Kinnan at this point, I believe, and we'll see it a little bit later. It was like consistently strung out on drugs. And like I said, like overweight and feeling bad about his body and like all this sort of stuff. And so to see him looking sort of the picture of health in this scene is a little incongruent to me um, as much as I love Darren Chris's uh, off key singing. So, yeah, no, I mean, he's beautiful <laughs> and like, it's just like, yeah. And, and you don't, uh, I mean, I guess, but that's been true of so many film and TV roles where, you know, this gorgeous Hollywood actor is playing somebody who, you know, was either good looking in real life, but not quite that, or wasn't at all good looking in real life, you know, but, but in this, I think you're right. It particularly, I don't know, there's something particularly, um, jarring about it. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't really know why. Well, I think I might know why, but I don't really want to go into it, but yeah. Okay. Well, um, maybe I'll press you on that a little later. But, yeah. uh, you know, so then we see Andrew talk his way into a room at this uh, CD motel. Um, we see him buy camera hat and sunglasses and staking out the Versace house, taking photos. Um, and so it's just like, here's Andrew. And the this is a uh, sort of flight of fancy of the show is like, he, not entirely because like, I think it's probably true that the reason that Andrew Cunanan went to Miami is because either he knew Versace, but at the very least was obsessed with Versace. So I believe he came to Miami for Versace. And um, 
there was a a piece um, in Vanity Fair, in fact, on Donatella Versace that came out uh, right around that time that a lot of people think is perhaps like one of his inspirations. So you're welcome uh, for, for going to Miami. And so I believe that he was there for Versace, but this notion that he immediately got to town and started sort of stalking hunting Versace is... A, a more of a question, you know, so mm-hmm. they, they have him sort of staking the house out and, uh, building a serial killer wall later. So, um, but, but more than that, we see him doing more of what we saw in the premiere, which is talking his way into whatever he wants by just inventing whatever story he can. And, um, He's so nimble at it. He can immediately... Uh, the the thing that is very true about Andrew Cadonan is that he could convincingly pull off that he was from France and just start dropping French like names and references and stuff like that because he was... He had like a you know very high IQ, first of all. I think it was like 147. And... Um, and just a knack for trivia. So he just, he was sort of like a culture sponge. He was very well read. And uh, so he could, he had that background to sort of sell these various personas that he would put on. And we see him do this uh, right away in the motel. And this woman is sort of charmed by him. And in Maureen's book, she interviews that woman. And the woman is just like talking about his smile and how like just taken she was by it. So it's, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think there, uh, and I think, you know, what we talked about last week in terms of uh, the scene we where, where uh, Andrew's with his friends and they're kind of rolling their eyes behind his back is that the difference between him and another bullshit artist is that he doesn't maybe necessarily always know that it's bullshit or kind of can will will himself into thinking the fantasy is real in some senses. And so in that little scene with the, at the hotel, like she's kind of like she's charmed, but she's also like, this guy is ridiculous. Uh, you know, but, but, but doesn't matter. She, 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 he wins her over anyway. But I think that crucially Andrew, as long as people are willing to go along with it, things are fine but he really does not like to have the thing, the fantasy questioned. Um, and so a lot of people I think were fortunate that they were like, Oh, this guy's silly, but sure. You know? Uh, and as we'll see later, people who didn't do that, uh, were, um, met with were grim fates. Punished. Um, and then, you know, speaking of people who are sort of didn't believe him, but entertained by him anyway, we get this character, Ronnie, who we met at the very end of last week's episode played by Max Greenfield. Um, and you know, he's this, uh, you know, hustler slimy hustler character of the Miami scene who features in Maureen's book vulgar favors and then this is another scene where once again like one of my notes was like Darren Chris is too attractive like like you know Andrew Cunanan sort of like stripping down to you know his undies or whatever taking a shower on the beach um while like kind of flaunting his body and talking about Versace is just not where Andrew Cunanan was at this point in his life. I think mm-hmm. earlier in his life, perhaps, but not now. So I don't know. Um, and, you know, and then he and Ronnie, the Ronnie character talk about Versace is a great creator. And we get this language from Andrew that's so ominous because uh, we've already seen what happens. That's This is the nature of a prequel. You have um, like sort of yeah. ominous fate hanging over you. We have Andrew talking about, um, jealously talking about Versace as the great creator, the man I could have been. Um, and and we get chills because we know what's coming next. Yeah. So, And it's at this point in the show where 
I first started to kind of feel this, and I don't mean this as a, in a negative way uh, in terms of the show, but this exhaustion. He's an exhausting person to be around because you know that he's a liar and you know that he's dangerous and you you just get so sick of his bullshit. You just want to shake him by the shoulders and be like, stop, you know? And um, I've, I've kind of always found characters like that, you know, the, the pathological liars, like to be particularly stressful characters to follow for, you know, this amount of time. Um, but I think that that's also a really interesting portrayal and a really interesting thing to show, you know, on, on a television series. So, so I'm not mad about it exactly, but like that, that shower scene, maybe I was just annoyed at the, the beach body or whatever, but like, you're just kind of like, you, it's just like, it's kind of sickening to be around him, you know, and, and, uh, and it's repulsive. Um, and so I don't exactly get why other people are charmed, but again, I know a lot more about him than these characters do in, in any, in those given scenes. Well, it's interesting because, um, you say for this amount of time. So like with something like, um, you know, our, our, um, one of our editors, Hilary Busis, coined, I think, the phrase, uh, the talented Mr. Cunanan in, in regards to <laughs> yeah. the back half of this series. Um, do, like, the, something like the talented Mr. Ripley, which is a shorter uh, installment, does that portrayal stress you out as to the same degree, or, or do you not consider them comparable? I think, I mean, that's one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, I, I think that uh, the way that Anthony Miguela built that film you get to the point of like just at that repulsion and then the movie ends, yeah. you know? So it's just it, the, the crescendo in that movie is really delicately done. And, and I don't think that, that there's anything wrong with the way that, um, that uh, American crime story is doing it. Um, it's just a different feeling. And I think that by the time I got to, I'm all just fast forward a little bit. By the time I got to the end of the fourth episode, I won't say what's in it, but I felt so emptied out that I needed to take a break and couldn't watch more. And, but that's good. It means I'm feeling something, you know, um, it's just not what I expected to feel from this show. I thought it was going to be sort of more lurid, you know, you know, murder on Miami beach kind of excess and all that. I didn't expect to feel so rattled by it. And, and I am, which is a testament to the show's writing and yes, to, I think Darren Chris's performance. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's, I think what a lot of us confronted with uh, people versus OJ Simpson is like, we sort of expected it to be this like fun romp through the tabloids of the nineties. And then we're like, Oh my God. It was devastating. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I agree. And, and, you know, and that's, that's one of the, like, I, I have seen, most of the series, I kind of want to wait to make my final judgment until I've seen all of the series, but I want to continuously interrogate this decision to tell the story backwards uh, the way they do. Yeah. Like like we said last week, like these first two episodes are a little bit muddy and then it will go sort of more um, cleanly backwards. But um, I understand front-loading the death of Versace and front-loading the Versace in general because that's sort of the famous name that sort of gets you into and then maybe Trojan horsing uh, in some other, uh, you know, people who are pe names that people don't know or are less familiar with. Um, but what by force, what that means, if you tell Andrew Cunanan's story backwards, is you're confronted with a monster and you are by degrees later forced, I mean, I, I, I felt this way, to find sympathy for where that came from. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, Maureen Orris' book starts at the beginning and goes to the end. It goes just forward in time. But this going backwards in time, it's almost like a, a challenge. Um, it's a challenge for the creators 
for Tom Rob Smith, I think specifically, to you, you meet Andrew at his worst when he's at his like most destructive, most um, obnoxious. And then maybe later you have to confront that early assumption or not. We can decide later yeah. on. But that's, that's, that's the nature of reverse storytelling, you know, so. It is. And I think that in this particular, with this particular story, uh, it's clever in that it, it, it puts the sensationalism up front. You know, the first scene is the murder. And the first episode is about the kind of fallout of that murder. I mean, it does go back in time a little bit, but but we're in this sort of, you know, quote unquote, present of 1997. Um and then in the subsequent episodes retreat further and further back and you get this wider, you know, panoramic look at what we're actually looking at, what the story actually is. And I think that it's a good reminder in a way that uh, nothing is as simple or as absolute as it seems or not nothing, but most things aren't as absolute black or white, whatever. Um, and even someone like Cunanan, who, if you just look at what he did in that, those, you know, the, those few months, uh, seems one way, like maybe you get somewhere the further you step back. So I think that, you know, I think it's interesting to do it that way. Um, whether or not it's always successful, I don't know. Or like whether or not we can even judge if it's successful until we see the whole thing. You know what I mean? I mean, right. uh, we can yeah. and we will on a week-by-week basis. We can definitely call out things that we don't find successful. But I think this will be one of those seasons of television, like many seasons of television, where like, it's really not until we get the whole picture that we will know what we've seen, you know? So, um, so then we get to this uh, like crazy scene (laughs) that I can't tell if I love or hate. I don't know. Basically Andrew picks up, uh, you know, goes to a beach sort of trolling for someone that he can, uh, you know, get paid to have sex with. He finds an older man. He duct tapes his face. Uh, this is a this is uh, you know as far as I know a completely imagined scenario, uh, and then we get like you know the the ultimate of Darren Chris is too attractive for this role uh, with him dancing around to Easy Lover by Phil Collins, Philip Bailey. Uh, it's a very gay American Psycho as far as I'm concerned, and uh, you know it's cr- it's a crazy sequence, and I I wonder if it will lose people or if it will just like pull people all the way in um what did you think of this yeah i i it felt a tad indulgent let's say Mm -hmm. you know and and uh, the obvious american psycho illusion with the dancing uh you know you half expected him to like go put on a plastic coat and get an axe you know (laughs) um but uh, you know, so that 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 bothered me a little bit. But again, what this show has so far been good at doing, surprisingly good at doing, is yes, there is this kind of Ryan Murphyish, campy kind of like, quality to it. But then at the end, is rescued or redeemed a bit by by a surprising jolt of humanity. Like we see the we the, the the scene stays with the old guy after Andrew leaves and you see him put his wedding ring back back on, pick up the like really conflicted, pick up the phone, dial 911 to report it and then not. And and therein is a whole story about this guy and about how a lot of things in you know subcultures or people living on the margins uh, can go unreported or unknown because you know people have to live in secrecy to some extent or not you know another um, and so I think that that's a you know in this scene that starts so silly and and maybe over the top it gets to a place of 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 actual you know effective kind of 
I don't know, thought. I, it's, 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 it's really interesting. And that's a consistent, um, very uh, prominent theme of this series is the damage of the closet in the 90s. Yes, like, big time. Uh, yeah. You know, across many different characters. Um, I think Kunan in, in many different ways is the ultimate, like, uh, terrible monster product of that, of the closet. Um but also sort of the, you know, what we already talked about before in terms of the Versace circling the wagons, and we'll see it, you know, crop up a few other times um, with some of the victims. And it's, uh, I, I agree with you. I think that that moment, I loved so much more as as uh, enjoyable as any Glee watcher can tell you as it is to watch Darren Chris dance around to music like that man and his wedding ring and the phone call he didn't make is what makes that scene for me. So I agree with you on that. Yeah. Then we cut to July 6, 1997, which, uh, let us remind you is just, I believe nine, yeah, nine days before the murder to a fashion show, uh, where Gianni and Donatella are having an argument over sort of what should be on the runway. And this is something we alluded to earlier in terms of, um, maybe depicting Gianni's, um, lust for life and joie de vivre and Donatella's insecurities and uncertainties about taking on the brand without him. Um, he has these ideas about like what a Versace woman is and, and what he wants to put out there in the world. And Donatella disagrees. And what we're meant to take away from this runway show is that he was right. And she, you know, sort of concedes that. And I, you know, I know nothing about fashion at all. Uh, so aren't I a pers- perfect person to co-host this podcast? But like, I know, <laughs> I, I know nothing about fashion. The Versace look is not necessarily my look, but every time that Edgar Ramirez like talks about his vision, I am so sold on all of it. I'm like, yes, you are a genius. I believe everything you say. So that's, you know, that's a, uh, a clever trick of the script, I think, and a, and a great performance from, from Ramirez. What, what did you think of this sequence? Uh, I too know very little about fashion um, and am sort of equally put off by it and drawn to it. You know, it's just such a foreign world to me that, and, and I also really like hearing people talk about cra- a craft that I don't understand in the same way that like architects are interesting or you or reading dance criticism is interesting because it's like, I don't know anything about that. And, and yet there's this whole vocabulary and this whole thought behind it. So, so I enjoyed it in that sense. And I also thought it was a nice bit of um, just kind of nineties table setting, you know, yeah. like a, when like the heroin chic thing was happening and, 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 you know, uh, just a little moment in, in fashion time. Uh, and I just really, really enjoy Penelope Cruz uh, in this show. So, so I, any scene we get with her uh, is great. I, I still am having trouble getting emotionally invested in, in Versace, even though Ramirez is good. Oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, I don't know what it is exactly, but um, but I love her. And, and yeah, again, it's just fun to see people talk about, well, these models are too skinny, you know, because that was a thing that was really, you know, yeah. very much talked about back then and still is now, of course. Um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about, about your troubles sort of accessing... Versace because uh, like my first instinct was I was like well maybe it's because he's playing such an icon and it's hard to access that but of course that Donatella Versace is also an icon and you, you know, Penelope is getting you there on that um, I find the Versace character like so I'm so immediately absorbed in him I think hmm. because Agur is so uh, warm and there's just something about that that I like I, um, I you know he's not he's this is not this character is not a saint 
And I don't think the show is going to try to make him be a saint, but there's something about him and the speeches he gives and his demeanor in general that I care so much about him being alive. And, you know, that's not necessarily true of every single murder victim we ever see in a film and a TV show. Um, I'm thinking, well, but, but going back to talented Mr. Ripley, that, that was sort of one of the things about talented Mr. Ripley is like some of the characters in that film, some of the victims like feel so, so, so alive that like their death is just really, um, feels like a lot, such a like snuffed out candle. That's, that's what Versace feels like to me. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to hear that from, not that you're wrong. I mean, we can all have our own yeah. reactions. But. I mean, I- I I I I can connect to the sadness of it, obviously, but I think it's more that uh, I don't see him as I don't get the warmth that you're getting, mm-hmm. and I think that I don't know if that's performance or if it's just that I really, as a as a kind of a general thing, uh, don't like brooding genius stuff, um, no matter what the form they're a genius in. You know, uh, I, I don't like tortured creator things. You know, I, I just. I find them to be alienating and um, frustrating in a way. Um, and even though the portray- portrayal of Versace here is not quite that, there are enough kind of strains of it that I, uh, I'm just it just it just feels less dynamic to me, and I, I kind of keep wanting to go back to Cunanan, which is weird because as I said, I also find that stuff really stressful. So. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. All right, well, here's where you get your wish. Uh, we we flashed him back to May 1997, uh, the month that Andrew arrived in Miami. He's with Max Greenfield's Ronnie. They're doing some good old crack cocaine. Um, it should be noted that at this point in his life, like Andrew Cunanan for I don't know, a couple years at the end of his life was uh, really strung out. Or, or no, here's what I'll say. He, according to Maureen North's book, he was a hardcore crystal meth user for a long time without anyone knowing. He was like a crystal, uh, closeted crystal meth user, and uh, you know, so this is not like an aberration. Him doing crack cocaine. This is part of like a long habit, according to um, so many people that Maureen talked to. Um, but we get this you know, creepy echo of what, uh, Andrew did to, uh, his client, which is he tapes his face up in the bathroom. Um, and this is something, you know, without spoiling, I don't know, history, this is something we'll see, uh, elsewhere in Andrew's murder spree, this idea of like taping faces so we can sort of draw our own conclusions about obscuring identity and faces and all, you know, masks and all this stuff having to do with Andrew Cunanan's like uh, way that he likes to put on different personas. But, uh, you know, it's, it, and divorced from all that, it's a deeply disturbing image. And um, here I will give like Max Greenfield a lot of credit for just being like uh, low key, very creeped out. <laughs> by yeah. Andrew opening the door with duct tape on his face. So, um, yeah. <clears throat> and then we we go back to, I mean, I guess, yeah, this is the brooding genius that you talked about. Johnny's working in his room while Antonio is having sex with another man in their bed. And, I, and it's pretty graphic, FX. It's, pretty graphic. <laughs> pretty, surprisingly. Pretty graphic. But also, I think what it's meant to really drive home is like that Johnny did not seem to have a problem with his lifestyle, which is like sort of what Donatella was implying, that... Johnny like endured it for Antonio's sake and maybe he did who knows but like in this moment he's sort of just gazing fondly at Antonio having fun in their shared bed so mm-hmm. um more power to you and then we get this pool scene and this is this this almost even more than 
perhaps a more intimate scene later in the episode, just really felt, I just really continue to feel the connection between these two guys when you have, um, Edgar Ramirez says Johnny just sort of swim up to Antonio and just sort of like rest to, like his head on his leg mm-hmm. and just sort of stare up at him. And I just, I, I feel their connection very strongly. So yeah, the intimacy feels very natural. Yeah. It's, it's not, you know, sometimes when you have, uh, well, I don't know if Edgar Ramirez is straight, I'm assuming he is, but, uh, you know, sometimes actors, they, they can be a little awkward, you know? Um, but this feels very, and I guess maybe it's cause they're such good friends. Yeah. Um, and then we get a little bit more Kathy Moriarty, yay, who wouldn't want mm-hmm. some of that, uh, as we see Andrew pawn the coin. And this is, this is one of several of those moments where like, we see her clock, you know, the board in her room for the wanted poster that isn't there because the FBI failed to distribute the wanted posters. Um, we see, I think in that same sequence, we see Dasha Polenko's character, Detective Wider, sort of looking in frustration as flyers pile up on top of the one poster that she was able to photocopy. Um, so just sort of more of this failed manhunt um, business. We see Andrew staking at the mansion. We see Johnny sort of like very kindly dismissing this uh, crazy person who is pretending to be Donatella and trying to get into his house. Um, and then we see a restaurant employee call the cops after recognizing Andrew from America's Most Wanted. So it's, it's sort of this, um, as we close out this episode, this uh, dread hanging over the almost, the almost ways in which just like a few days before the murder, uh, Andrew Kananen could have been stopped and Versace could have been saved, right? Right. Um, and then the last sequence is Johnny and Antonio go into a nightclub and Andrew follows them in and he sort of misses them. Um, we see Johnny and Antonio. I mean, I don't know how uh, invented this is. And, it, and if it is, this does feel almost a little too much for me in terms of like, oh, they were just about to like really commit to each other and get married. And then it was cut short. You know what I mean? Like I, that's, yeah, that feels a little like, okay, guys. Yeah. You know, but, but, but them like, canoodling was sort of lovely but like it just seemed the timing of it the like this seems like because andrew's wearing the clothes he was wearing and he's already left the motel this just feels like right on the eve of the murder um it just timing wise just feels a little manufactured to me um but then we get this i think a really good close of the episode which is andrew meeting someone in the club and um i guess probably in a moment that you find (laughs) deeply annoying rattling off all the things that like he's ever said he was, uh, you know, that we will uh, no doubt see him say at some point or another throughout the series. Um, you know, I'm most likely to be remembered. And then he goes, I'm, or most likely not to be forgotten. Something like that. Then I'm Andrew Kananen. And I think it's, um, I think it's a really strong close to an episode. Um, that, uh, I mean, we could talk further down the line, whether or not every single episode has, has a strong close to it, but I think this is one of the stronger buttons, uh, that they put on an episode. So, yeah, I, I think that, that, that ending is, is interesting. I mean, it's almost, it's almost a little abstract, right? I mean, it's not, you know, it's, uh, it's very, it's an arty, uh, in a way, mm-hmm. but there is something about it that gives me a little pause where it, there's a, a little glimmer of sort of valorization in it. Like, you know, we're, we're, are we making this guy to seem more interesting and more complex and, and more sort of towering than he was? I mean, and, mm. you know, and maybe in reality he was just like a low level drug addict. Nothing, not, not that there's any, you know, there's no 
fault in character if you're addicted to drugs. But you know what I mean? Like he was a hustler and he killed four people in very or five people in very cruel fashion. And like, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe we're sort of turning him into too much of an anti-hero in a way. Um I don't think that that's true generally. I think that scene just might kind of do that a little oh, bit. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm having I'm having a real hard time right now with this whole it's this maybe it did not start with the people versus OJ, but it's sort of where I source it, which this which is this reconsideration of certain 90s figures. This is not at all what the assassination of Johnny Versace is doing, but like the reexamination of the Marsha Clark legacy and what Marsha Clark became this symbol of this hero, this misunderstood hero symbol um, when People versus OJ finished. And then what's going on right now with the I, Tanya Awards campaign, the same thing is sort of happening with Tanya Harding. And like, I was kind, I was pretty okay with it with Marsha Clark, because I think she did get a raw deal with Tanya Harding. Like I'm what I what I what I'm interested in is adding shades of gray to the narrative of people who have just been considered villains. I think it's more interesting to consider them in shades of gray. And I don't even think that the film I Tanya does this, but the awards campaign around I Tanya is like making Tanya Harding into this misunderstood feminist folk hero that I just cannot be on board for. And I don't think that I think at this, at, at its best, what this show can do is add some shades of gray to a monster. But mm-hmm. uh, you're right at its worst what it could do is like build him up into this mythological figure that he doesn't deserve. So and get and yeah. and and really would be giving him what he wanted. I mean, it's do- I know? mean, and that's that's what we saw at the end of the last episode, right? Is him buying all those papers with his name in the headline, and that's what he wanted for better or worse. Uh, Maureen's Maureen's book, which I really enjoyed, and I'm glad she wrote, but that also gives Andrew Cannon something he wants. There's a whole book about him that he would be thrilled to know that that exists and he would be thrilled to know that this tv shows exist so we do have to i and think that vanity fair is doing a podcast <laughs> right exactly our our own role Shit. That. yeah we're, we're complicit played right into his hands but like that's something we do have to reckon with is like this is to a certain degree to to a very much a degree giving andrew Cannon what he wanted but at the same time if the show can examine some of these other themes that that you and i have talked about in terms of like you know the closet or the depiction of, of gay men at the time or, you know, all these other issues that Ryan Murphy has said over and over, this is what he wants the show to accomplish, then mm-hmm. maybe, you know, then it's worth it. Um, so that's something. Yeah. And I think if it also maybe sheds some light on why he wants it, you know, yeah. uh, obviously um, there he had psychiatric problems, but something else was you know there was other there are other external forces kind of guiding this this desire for well, i don't know what status fame money um i think it had much more to do with status than it did with money but um y- you know and i think maybe there's something in there about uh what the like you said the closet kind of m- makes you know it, 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 c- it can cause people to want to transcend something that they can't control that's something innate to them you know and that seems to be a lot of what's guiding Cunin. and so if the show has something to say about that then I think it might be worth risking uh, giving a murderer what he wanted um, so this is the conclusion of the first two episodes that sort of does this weird back and forth around the murder timeline jump. And then from here on out, the show kind of hits the pedal to the floor in terms of reverse back in time. And this will be an interesting yeah. exploration of, uh, you know, a lot of, and just to, yeah, go ahead. 
And just a caveat uh, to listeners: the next two episodes are tough. They're really good, but they're they're not they're not cheery. Let's say. No, I don't think any of this is cheery. Um, no, but the. This will take us, I think, deeper into territory that a lot of people don't know anything about, which I think will be interesting yes, exactly. to sort of like all watch together because, you know, you and I at least, you know, peripherally knew about Andrew Cunanan and Versace and all of that. But in terms of what Andrew Cunanan did in the months leading up to that, uh, I knew nothing about. So I'll be fascinated for us all to talk about it together. Is there anything else you want to mention this episode before we go to our interview? No, I think I've said all I had to say and more. <laughs> all right. Now we will we will listen to our interview with Max Greenfield. Joining us this week is Max Greenfield. Max, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really... I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Thank you for having me. Now, um, I believe you and I were both in school when the uh, Versace murder happened. How much did you know about this case before you were approached for the show? Uh, not much at all. I had no idea the back. I didn't know there. Were, I didn't know it was a multiple murder situation. I, I thought my only real recollection of it was. This guy had killed Versace. I mean, I was in school when it happened. I think it was probably like 16 or 17. And I had known that this guy had killed fashion designer Gianni Versace. And he thought, oh, that's how horrible. And then you went to school the next day. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I just didn't, I didn't have any, I didn't, I didn't know any of the details of it at all. And so when, when you were approached for it, you know, what, what did you do to start learning about it? Um, you know, I, I knew that Ryan was doing the story. Um, we had talked about it a little bit. He had told me a little bit about what he was doing with it. And then he kind of approached me with the role and, 
uh, I remember I, I, I had put myself on tape for it because he wasn't offering me it. He was just like, you should look at this. And I put myself on tape, sent in the tape, and then two weeks later I was in Miami. Um, so I sort of had to get like somewhat of a crash course in the story, but also so much of the backstory and so much of what happened wasn't necessarily important to what I had to do on the show. Like it wasn't important that I knew the backstory of all the killings or the store the, or the complete storyline of Andrew Cunanan or Gianni Versace. My character is really so separate from that. And I, so in terms of preparation as an actor, like I, I studied a much different part of the story that I don't know that you would immediately pay attention to. Your character, Ronnie, is based on a real person that Maureen talked to for the book, Vulgar Favors, but sort of a composite, right? It's, it's Ronnie, but not quite exactly literally Ronnie. Yeah, to me, what was so important about that character and what he represented was the period of time. And this is sort of what I was like talking about when I said I studied sort of a different part of the story, which was what period of time this was happening in. It was 97, probably around a year and a half, maybe two years out from when they had sort of figured out the correct medication to give to patients with HIV. And that transition was so intense to those who had it and to those around the people who had it because you for the for 15 years you were watching people die from this disease that there didn't seem to be a cure from and then all of a sudden people who were very sick within 30 days were getting better there was like these people who who lived through that Ronnie was one of those people and he, you know, you had this, I would assume that, you know, they had this feeling of being a leftover and feeling guilt and feeling why, why did I survive this? And, and not so many of the people that I watched die. And, and I lived my life thinking that I was certain that I was going to die. And now, and now I'm confused by the fact that I'm still here and that there is or there at least there seems to be this medication that's working. So contextually, it was such a such an odd, 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 confusing emotional time for the LGBT community. And I think Ronnie really represents that more than anything. So that's really sort of where I focused my attention. And I thought it was really important to bring to the story as opposed to like, you know, honoring exactly who Ronnie was in real life. The pushback that there's been from the Versace family on this particular show did center a bit on the depiction of Johnny Versace and HIV AIDS specifically. And I know that Ryan, Ryan has this great quote where he said, I think it's moving and powerful. And I don't think there should be any shame associated with HIV. Since your character does represent this other experience with the disease, I was wondering if there was a conversation about how you wanted HIV AIDS to be represented on the show. Well, you know, I can't, I, I can't speak for Ryan. Um, Cause I'm sure he has his own personal viewpoints and I don't, I don't know that we ever really discussed it, but for me, the thing that I heard, I mean, look, people contracted that disease in many different ways, but for a very long time, there was a feeling amongst, a very scared national community that it was only sexually transmitted and it was only sexually transmitted amongst the LGBT community and gay men. I'm sure I will misquote him, but there was an activist during the ACT UP uh, movement named Bob Rasky. Incredible. He's in the How to Survive a Plague documentary. What he would say is, 
about being punished. And I don't, and what I mean by punished is like the neglect that the government and, and, and the neglect that the media and, and the, just the overall neglect in addressing the AIDS issue to be punished for being human for, for somebody who had gotten a disease where it was sexually transmitted. It's like, how do we blame somebody for being for being human? It's a part of life. It's a part of what 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 we all do. And and to be dismissed or to think that this is something like that a death sentence is deserved was such an insane idea to me. That no, I don't think it should be. I don't think it should ever be something that is looked upon in a negative way at all. At all. One of the amazing things that the American crime story series has done with OJ and now with Versace is give maybe a younger audience a window into, you know, the 90s that you you and I lived through, but maybe they aren't as aware of. If there's an audience that wants to know more about this time and HIV and AIDS and what people were going through, you mentioned a documentary. What What other research did you do to learn about this time period? Yeah, you know, there's some really great documentaries out there. There's How to Survivor Plague. There's Vito. And then it's just like, you know, you can find any member of the LGBT community who is of a certain age, and they will tell you very plainly what that period of time was like and how terrifying it was in vivid detail. If you're somebody who wants to know more about it, that would be my suggestion. Sit down and have a, have a discussion about it. As Ronnie, you you just have such a different physical presence than you do in a lot of your other roles. And hearing now that you only had two weeks before sort of you were down in Miami, I'm guessing you didn't do any sort of actual physical transformation. Is this all just the way you carry your body, the way you inhabit, inhabit Ronnie in this role? And I remember Ryan had called me to set one day and anything we had shot up until that point, I was sitting down and we were going to do a walk and talk. And he, he was like, I need, I, I need this character to have a limp. I think you should have a limp. <laughs> I thought, okay. So <laughs> we stood like we were, they were shooting a scene and we were out, I guess on the Miami boardwalk and in South Beach. And I was just like walking up and down, <laughs> practicing different limps. And Ryan would go, yes, no, yeah, maybe. No, I like that one. That feels right. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Let's. All right, that's that's okay. Good. <laughs> Did he give you any notes on what on what kind of limp he was going for? Just made you try all different kinds. That's not kind of what the best part about Ryan is, and why I love working with him so much. The idea that he'll go, I know, I definitely want a limp. And then he'll let you <laughs> showcase a hundred different limbs for him until you get to a place where you're you're like that's the one. And then all of a sudden you're doing it, and then you're doing the limb. You worked with Ryan before this rather extreme storyline, American Horror Story Hotel. Uh, when you were approached to do this, did you think? oh, it'll be much calmer. This is based in reality, only to find that you're filming a scene with Darren Chris in a duct tape mask. I think when Ryan approaches you with something or anything, really, you, have, you just have to be open for anything. I think when, when there, whatever was going on on Versace and, and you're just like, yeah, sure. <laughs> nothing really phases, nothing really, after you, after you do, after you spend like a decent amount of time on a Ryan set, 
I think not much phases you. I really love the Ronnie characters. One of the early uh, indicators that we get of people not believing Andrew Kananen's stories. I don't know. Like it's 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 fun to watch you as Ronnie absorb the complete nonsense that Darren Chris as Andrew Kananen is sort of dishing up. Um, how much do we think Ronnie is meant to believe? Or oh, in your opinion, how much does Ronnie believe of what Andrew Kananen says? Zero percent, fifteen percent. What what do you what do you think? I think he's just so happy to have like found a friend and someone to talk to and found, you know, some genuine companionship, which I don't think he's had before. So in terms, I think when he listens to him, you know, trying to figure it out is not necessarily what he's doing as opposed to like, Oh yeah, I'm just trying to hang on to my friend here. You know, I'm trying to like keep up with this guy. Yeah. He's an enormously sympathetic character. And one that, like, I think it's important as we see Andrew as sort of a monstrous and then maybe later on the series sympathetic character, but as this sort of, like, monstrous depiction of um, a gay man, it's important to have these very, like, sympathetic gay men elsewhere in the story to um, offer up a a different point of view. You know, was that a discussion at all to make sure that Ronnie, even though he is sort of in this underbelly of Miami to make him sympathetic. I know it was really important to me to have that. Cause I, I mean, it, it was there in the writing and, you know, I think there were a lot of scenes that you could have played really sketched out or high on drugs. And I wanted to like really pull back from that and, and make this guy, I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to know more about him as opposed to like rolling through some of the dialogue as if they were just high and that's like that was the extent of their relationship. It really does feel like an important show. It feels like an like a really uncomfortable show but one that really needs but a story that feels like it's important and that needs to be told. And the idea that it's real um and that there were just such specific victims of this makes it hard to talk about, as I've been doing press for this, it feels odd to talk about it as a show. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I think a lot of the, well, I think everyone has felt that way, you know, like having talked to Maureen and everyone involved in the show, I think there is just a tremendous amount of respect for the people who survived this time period the people who are still mourning for what happened. And I think that that's the right attitude to have is just sort of, this feels important to tell in the most respectful way possible to, to all the real people who both survived it and didn't. We ho- I, I hope an audience member watches it and really, and really takes time to like, think about it. And that's what I did. It doesn't feel like a show that you're going to go binge. It feels like I'm going to watch an episode and then I'm going to go think for a week. And then I'll come back and watch the next one. And maybe at the end of it, I'll think differently about certain things. Well, that's, I mean, that's sort of what we're hoping to do with this whole thing is, is more time to process uh, what we're watching. Yeah, totally. So thank you so much for talking about your experience. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
This episode was engineered by Danielle Roth and produced by Dave Gonzalez. We will be back with episode three of American Crime Story next week. But until then, Richard, where can people find your work? Uh, I'm on VanityFair.com. Uh, also at on Twitter at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. I'm Joanna Robinson. You can also find me on VanityFair.com where we have wall-to-wall Versace coverage going on. Or you can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. As I said last week, feel, please feel free to tweet at Richard or myself any sort of thoughts or questions you have about the show. We really want to hear from you guys as well. Um, but until then, we will see you next time. Want to stay up to date on the biggest stories in pop culture and entertainment? Then be sure to check out the TMZ podcast. I'm Charlie Cotton from TMZ, the TV show, and every day I'll sit down with a member of our news team to give exclusive breakdowns of the day's most talked about headlines, stories we break, and the stories you care about. So check out the TMZ podcast, Monday through Friday, and the other podcasts from the TMZ audio network like Last Days and TMZ Verified. Available on all podcast platforms. Can't get enough of Bachelor Nation. Enter Betch's hilarious Bachelor recap podcast, The Bachelor. Each week, hosts Kay Brown and me, Jared Freed, recap the latest episodes of The Bachelor and make fun of all the ridiculous things the contestants say and do. Because honestly, why else watch the show if not for the fun commentary? Listeners have called The Bachelor the much-needed humor and commiseration they want after watching the show. Listen to The Bachelor podcast now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcast.